What's up, everybody? This is Grant, that cause artist. Um, welcome to another episode of the Disruptors for Good podcast. I know we're still in some some wild times here, and and I want to try to have some guests on that could give a little bit of perspective onto you know what's going on from from at least their vantage point of their expertise. And look, I, I'm not in sort of the health sector, and I know a lot of us probably aren't. So it's good to have people on that can give a little bit of of knowledge to to the situation, uh, at least better than. And I can. It's always good to be informed and educate yourself on things we don't know about, right? So it's it's uh it's it's really interesting to to talk to individuals who can give you a little bit more uh, information than than we can uh, we can normally uh, get in our own lives. So uh, today we're having uh, two individuals from the Clinton Foundation, uh, specifically the uh, area called the Clinton Health Matters Initiative, and that's Catherine Smith and uh, Christian Thrasher. Uh, so I'll go a little bit into about. Uh, each one of, of what they sort of do day to day and what their roles are. Uh, but it's a, just a long conversation, just obviously about sort of COVID-19 and, and kind of a lot of the different elements that we've yet to see it hit, whether it's, uh, you know, depression, anxiety, you know, all the different facets of our society that will be affected from, you know, financial pains to, you know, physical and emotional pains that will last for, for a long time. And there's just so much we don't know yet. And there's so much to to have yet happen, and it's just uh, this was recorded on on Monday. Um, so look, things are going to change, right? Numbers are going to go up, and, and things could change pretty drastically. But this is sort of what when we recorded it, and, and the information that we sort of had then. Catherine is the CEO of the Clinton Health Matters Initiative at the Clinton Foundation. She previously served as the executive director of the Harvard Center for Primary Care, where she led business development, strategy, and operations. She also holds a graduate degree in social science from the University of Chicago. Uh, Christian is the senior director of substance abuse disorders and recovery at the Clinton Foundation. Um, he oversees all the foundation's effort to help and address substance use disorders. Uh, before joining the Clinton Foundation, he served as a senior vice president of behavior health at ShareCare a health and wellness uh, technology engagement platform. Uh, he also served several leadership roles at the Stature Health uh, Leadership Institute at Morse, Morehouse School of Medicine in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, where the CDC is, is actually headquartered. So he, he touches on a lot of information uh, about that as well. So listen, it, it, these individuals just have a bit more knowledge of, of sort of the healthcare infrastructure, what sort of COVID-19 actually is, I think it's really good to educate ourselves on what it is compared to other viruses out there and what are some of the things that we need to look out for and some of the things that we may see coming down the road. So I hope you enjoy the conversation. Um, it's been a, a crazy time. A, a lot of people are kind of just dealing with different things in our lives, right? So it's uh, it's it's just a wild time to, to be to be a, a human being. So uh, I hope everybody's doing well. I hope everybody's family is safe um, and secure for the moment. Please reach out with any thoughts, um, grant at causeartist.com. Uh, hope everybody is doing well again, and uh, thanks for listening. How I usually like to start these is with individuals' journeys. So if, if we can go into a little bit of background from, from both your individual point of views, I think that's a really good place to start. So 
Uh, Catherine, if you want to go first, that would be great. Sure, I'm happy to. So I started out actually with a background in social science research and was really thinking about how communities and how activism drive economic development and social development globally and ended up just sort of by chance working in healthcare in Chicago and leading a clinical research study and started to make connections between the community and economic development work that I started out doing early in my career and health development work that was really catalyzing in Chicago and ended up, you know, spending the majority of my career over the last 15 years focusing on health system strengthening in the United States and really thinking about provider education and engagement. How do you engage different actors across the healthcare community, patients, physicians, PAs, and nurses in advancing the health and wellness agenda in the United States. And then also working in community, really connecting communities to healthcare organizations and really working on the health and equity issues that we have in the United States. So I spent my career uh, up to now anyway over the last 20 plus years in public health, bulk of that being at a medical school here in Atlanta, Georgia. And uh, we really looked at several different areas within public health, but one of the things that we were most committed to is this idea of health promotion and disease prevention, regardless of whatever aspect of public health we were talking about. We were also really interested in looking at the intersection of science and being informed by the best available public health science in the context of deeply held beliefs. So we know that in this country, uh, many people uh, subscribe to a particular faith tradition and this whole idea of the role of spirituality uh, within health and public health was always of interest to us. So I've, as I said, spent most of my career in public health, um, but focusing quite a bit on behavioral health uh, within that realm. So, so I, I think we were, we were talking a little bit about before we came on and, and, and part of why I really wanted to do this is, is I think education and all this, because it is obviously new, I think, to our country in the modern era um, of news channels and social media. We've sort of never had this dynamic just thrust in our society before. Um, so before I think we go into a lot of different areas, let's just start simply with maybe what is COVID as far as how is it different maybe from other sort of epidemics or pandemics or just viruses in general? And, and I guess what makes it different and maybe what makes it maybe harder to deal with or easier to deal with? Yeah, that's that's a great question, you know, because we're hearing so many terms thrown around COVID-19 and Corona, mm -hmm. uh, but very few people have ever stopped to understand what exactly it is. So COVID is actually an acronym. Uh, the, the CO is Corona and Corona are uh, a family of viruses. Uh, that really range from the common cold all the way to severe acute respiratory syndrome or SARS. The VI in COVID is for virus. So CO is corona, VI is virus, and D is disease. And the reason why 19 is tacked on the end of that is because this was discovered in 2019. So COVID-19 is really talking about a coronavirus that was discovered in 19 or 2019. And it is obviously one of the most severe that we have seen. The two other COVIDs I think that you will remember is the one back in 2003, which was called SARS. 
the severe acute respiratory syndrome. Uh, and then more recently in 2012, we had MERS, which is the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome. And so those are the two other COVIDs that I think people will remember. But this one is obviously much, much worse because of the way that it's being transmitted. I guess to, to just piggyback on, on that real quick, is that is it from that same family of SARS and MERS and it just has evolved? Or is it something completely different or does it have similarities to it? And then what is the difference from COVID-19 to something like H1N1, which seem to spread globally as largely, right? And did have a massive death toll, but this is, this is different from that as well. Absolutely. So that's a great question because so many people are confused and think that this is the flu. This is not the flu. Coronaviruses are not the flu. And it's really important for people to understand that if they went and got their flu vaccine this year, that does not make them immune to COVID-19. COVID-19 is a respiratory uh, disease or virus that uh, is not the flu. And so that's super important for everyone to understand. It is a, it is a COVID in the sense of, you know, it's, it's a coronavirus disease, but each one of them have different sort of strains, if you will. And so this COVID-19, because of the many ways that it's being transmitted, you can look at the numbers. I think uh, as of today, we now have in this country over 40,000 uh, positive tests, and we're creeping up on 500 deaths. The last I looked, it was 472 people have died in the United States. Worldwide, we're looking at 360,000 positive tests and over 15,000 deaths. So, you know, when you think back to MERS, I mean, MERS, we only had two cases in the United States and just about 850 deaths from MERS, whereas SARS, uh, we had eight deaths, or I'm sorry, eight cases in the United States with no deaths. So you can see how different COVID-19 is from some of the other COVIDs that we've had in recent times. And I think I would jump in and add that one of the things that's a little different, even beyond the flu and other diseases that we've seen in this country, is that the CDC and healthcare systems are asking us to stay at home if we're sick. So they're saying, if it's an emergency, call 911. Right, right. But if we're showing some of the symptoms that we can read pretty easily on the CDC website, they're asking us to stay at home. And I think that's a process difference for most of us, you know, in the United States where we can go to urgent care or a primary care doctor, in some cases, even the emergency room. And with this particular pandemic, that makes the pan can make the pandemic worse. And so for people who've seen the news asking them to stay at home, that's a, a real fundamental difference for COVID-19 for, for most of us, just in terms of how we live our life and how we think about being sick. And the confusion for somebody that's not in that space, right, or just a casual viewer to all this is that if you're if you're really sick and stay home, at what point do you know if you're like more than just sick, right, and you need to go to the hospital, right? Because if you're sick and they said you stay home, okay, but what are you supposed to do? Just like write it out? You know, like, what if you start showing, real, you know, it, it, it's just kind of a weird dynamic of like, okay, I'm sick, I'm just going to stay home. But like, what do I do when I'm home? Is there anything I can do to take care of myself, right? Without having to go to a hospital, there are things I can do to have my, you know, issue not get worse. I think that's sure. oh, a great, that's a great question. Because I think that's what everybody's really worried about. And why a lot of people 
leave and go to the ER, to urgent care. And the good news is, is that we've been shifting in this country in a lot of places to what's called telehealth or telemedicine. And that's medicine that can be delivered over the phone or over a web interface, like a podcast. And so people can call, if you have a primary care doctor, call your primary care doctor. A lot of people don't have primary care doctors. So every state has a health department and the CDC did all of the state health departments, which is a really great resource. So people can call their state health department. And if they feel like it's an emergency, they should call 911. You know, similarly, if, if they have chest pains, right? So anything, anytime someone thinks it's an emergency, in this case, it would probably be trouble breathing, um, but they can always call 911 in an emergency. And if they're just curious and they're not sure or they're confused about what to take and how to self-manage at home, they should definitely call their primary care doctor or call their state health department. And I would add to that, that one of the confusing parts about this COVID is that it does present with flu-like symptoms. And so you might think, oh, I wonder if this is the flu or I wonder if this is just me having a cold. But two of the things that happen that they're really wanting people to pay attention to is first, one of the first signs is, uh, is diarrhea. So having some abdominal pain followed by some diarrhea. The second is your temperature. Um, what they're saying is anything above 100.4 is when you really have to start thinking, okay, I might need to go in and, and get checked out. So um, people I've talked to start with a low-grade fever that, you know, begins to climb. Uh, and, and what we are seeing is that when temperatures get over the 100 mark or 100.4 is when you really start to need to very much pay attention to it. And uh, as Catherine said, call your healthcare provider or um, if you uh, really have trouble breathing or anything respiratory, that's when, you know, it's, it, you don't try to tough it out. You don't try to push through it. You uh, bring yourself in. Another sort of big topic has been the elderly, right? And sort of individuals with preconditioned conditions. And for some reason, we haven't seen, you know, thankfully, obviously, younger individuals don't seem to, I guess it's unclear. It seemed to be the, the first sort of stage of this didn't seem to affect them as much, but that doesn't, I think, <laughs> give them the green light to just kind of live life normally, right? Because they're still carriers or some people still can be affected if you're young and you have a preconditioned condition that either you know about or, or don't know about. So it, is that different from other COVIDs? Is that a very unusual thing to have happen? Or is that sort of just how normal influenza, it just attacks people that are, you know, not as healthy as, as another person is. Well, there's a couple of questions there and what you ask. First, that, you know, you have to remember is, once again, this is not the flu. But for people that are immunocompromised or, you know, a weakened immune system, and that happens with age, you know, as we age, our immune system uh, is weakened. Um, so that's why you hear a lot about elderly being disproportionately affected. But we do not know everything there is to know about COVID-19. More is being learned every single day. So um, I think it's important to know that as COVID has come over here in the United States, it is affecting younger people. And so the idea a week ago was that younger people were not being affected. Uh, that is not true. That in the United States now, we're seeing the numbers go up among young people. And so, like I said, we don't know enough. But I do know that people with immunocompromised uh, diseases like diabetes, heart disease, uh, high blood pressure, severe asthma, those types of things 
put them at a greater risk. And uh, it's a much more complicated situation uh, when you have someone like that. And so obviously, if you are living with elderly people, if you have someone with immunocompromised, you know, they're HIV positive, things like that, you want to be absolutely extra careful with regard to keeping everything around you disinfected at all times. Catherine, I wanted to touch on something you said initially with your, um, correct me if I'm wrong, if this is not the word, but knowledge of sort of hospital structures and sort of the nursing environment. I have a lot of friends that are nurses and the feedback that I'm getting from them is very devastating. It's very scary. We hear stuff on TV and, and it, it's sort of your, the positive and the good news and everybody has everything they need. That's simply just not the case. Nurses are having to reuse masks. They're having to um, really, really work in conditions that they are not sort of equipped to handle this. I'm not going to say what hospitals they are, but I, I don't know if you spoke to any sort of nurses or physicians or doctors, um, but I have friends in these hospitals and they are not equipped to handle this. And I think that to me is a very scary part of this. And what I guess what are some of the issues that hospitals are going to be facing and be facing? And I guess like are most hospitals supposed supposed to be prepared for something like this? That's a great question that you ask. And I think, you know, hospitals are prepared for health emergencies. And at the same time, there are some things that are a little different about this particular pandemic. On one side, there's the shortage of personal protective equipment, or if people have seen the PPE is the is the abbreviation that's typically used. And so um, similar to what you're hearing from your friends, we're hearing the same thing from our friends and colleagues who work in hospitals and clinics across the United States. There's concerns about their own safety. So on one side, if there's not enough personal protective equipment, so that's things like face masks or hand sanitizer, gowns, so the gowns that you see um, healthcare, healthcare providers wear, um, different types of face and body covering. And there's shortages of that in part because the public have started to use some of those materials. I think you might have seen in the news a lot of information about face masks and people in public buying face masks where in the past they weren't. So for the manufacturers of hand sanitizer and face masks and some of the other equipment that's normally used in hospitals, the demand has gone up so much that it's taken away from healthcare providers. And so on one side, you see people asking the public to stop using medical equipment if it's not necessary for them. And on the other side, you've seen some innovation around certain factories. Like I think I saw, um, maybe it was Anheuser-Busch or another company converting their operations to to manufacture hand sanitizer for healthcare professionals and, and healthcare professionals and the public. So there's a lot of fear around what happens with the protective equipment. On the other side, and this is the piece that I think really people are scared about. So we talked about the elderly and vulnerable populations. We're really worried about those individuals getting sick and potentially passing away from COVID-19. And one of the reasons that we're worried about that is because our health system is set up with a certain number of you will see in the news beds, they'll say beds. And I think what they mean by that are facilities within a hospital that can have the right respirators and breathing machines for people who are in respiratory distress. And as 
As Chris mentioned, um, COVID-19 causes respiratory distress, which means it's just hard for people to breathe. And so when it's hard for people to breathe, they need respirators and they need physicians and nurses and PAs and other staff to help them. And so you can imagine that if you sort of layer that on top of each other, that we have more demand for those beds, so more sick people going into the hospital. There's not enough beds for all the sick people. And then our providers before that didn't have enough personal protective equipment to keep themselves from getting sick or exposed. So that means in the hospital, there might be not enough providers to care for the sick people. And when you see there's an infographic or a picture going around of the two curves, the disease curve with a dotted line, that's really what that dotted line is saying. That's the capacity for our healthcare system to deal with sick people. So if we have too many sick people, not enough beds, not enough respirators, and not enough healthcare professionals, then we hit that line or we exceed that line. And that's a problem because then we can't care for the really sick people. Chris, do you have an idea of what what that line might be or could be? Is it a certain amount of sick people or is it or is it just a certain amount of like severely sick people, right? Because there's I think there's there's a difference between you're sick. But then you're also like, if you're infected, right? But then there's also like, you're gravely ill and like your infection is much worse than another portion that isn't, right? Because we see all these stories of these celebrities coming out and they have it, right? But they're, you know, saying, oh, I'm fine. I'm doing well, right? Is that what it's going to be most of the population when they get it? It's going to be like that. And then there's going to be still a massive amount of people who actually get infected and it's severe. Is there... Is there a number or you see of like severe cases that becomes a very, very prop, a, a tipping point, so to speak, for the hospitals or just for our country in general? That's a good question. You know, um, the, the truth is we don't know. You know, we're, we're being informed right now by epidemiologists that are trying to figure all of this out and just look at how this disease is being transmitted. I've heard that uh, it could affect up to 70 or 80 percent of this country, meaning 70 or 80 percent of this country could wind up getting COVID-19. It doesn't mean 70 or 80 percent of the country is going to die. It means that 70 or 80 percent of the country is going to get COVID-19 and many, most, the majority will recover just fine. Uh, I just heard a story this morning of a person that I know and her husband had all the signs and symptoms, went into the hospital with a fever and diarrhea and all these other things. And um, basically there were no tests, but they said to him, you most likely have it. So just go home and take care of yourself. And if things get much worse, then you'll have to come back. But at this point, you know, um, treat it as if you have it and just go home and and get plenty of fluids and rest and the whole thing. So I think that's what we're going to start seeing. Frankly, I think the number would be much higher if we had enough tests that if everyone felt like they wanted to get a test, they could. So as more testing becomes available, I think the numbers are going to continue to go up, but not to alarm anyone, because I think the truth is, is that most people will recover from COVID-19. It's those people that have compromised immune systems or weakened immune systems that are most at risk or most vulnerable. Which is a lot of Americans, though, right? And, and generally a lot of people around the world, you know, I think because it, 
Is it? Well, it is. I mean, if you just look at the numbers, you know, you can see, Grant, that, you know, losing already almost 500 people in the United States uh, and and over 15,000 worldwide. I mean, yeah, that's a lot of people when you compare it to other COVID. And certainly in this country, yeah, there's a lot of folks with pre-existing conditions that will be affected. That's why we're pleading with folks that, you know, if you're in for an elective surgery, if there are ways that, you know, you can postpone it, give up the bed because we need the beds. Based on the numbers, I mean, more than half of these are in New York alone. They do not have the beds. We only have about 45,000 beds in the country. And, you know, with the numbers going up the way that they are, we're just simply not going to be able to house everyone that has this. And and we don't want to be put in the situation that Italy is in, where the doctors are trying to decide who lives and who dies. But, you know, I don't want to be so grim, but that's what they're doing there. And our country you know, it's five times larger than Italy, uh, population-wise. So you can just look at the numbers and see what we're up against. Yeah, I think that's the the key point here. The key, the key, I think, to all the sort of stay at home and sort of the quote-unquote lockdowns is because I think what happened in Italy is obviously the worst case scenario for here. And I think if we can somehow avoid that, I think that is. It's. I know it's a bad word to say, but that's a victory to to some extent because I think. What we see Italy going through is is so it's just devastating and catastrophic that I can't even imagine if that really escalated and started to happen here. Really, what would happen just from an economic standpoint and, and just from an emotional standpoint of the country and the people that are on the front lines of this every day, like their lives are going to be changed forever. Like those doctors and nurses in Italy, like you're just not going to be the same person ever again, even if they get through this without getting sick. I mean, so is is Italy a possibility that that could occur here? Or is there some good news that we're doing some things that are going to be beneficial where that can be avoided? Or like you said before, Chris, we just we just don't know yet. Right. Because it's so kind of early on still. Well, I, I can tell you one thing. If we if we really listen to the public health officials that are pleading with the American people to stay at home and slow the progression of this disease down, I think we have a fighting chance at keeping the numbers lower than they would be otherwise. But if people are going to continue to go out and think that, you know, this is not a serious uh, virus, then I think we are going to see the numbers continue to rise until in such time that, you know, the federal government is going to have to make the decision that we're going to have to uh, lock down everything. And none of us want that, right? But all of us want this to go away. And all of us can do our part as individuals and as families and communities to slow this down. And that means follow the directions of our public health officials. They know what's going on and they're not recommend. They they understand that these recommendations are not fun, but they are necessary. And so all of us are going to have to sacrifice. One of the things that I think a lot about is really how we care for each other. I think you mentioned, Grant, the emotional side of this. And I think what's driving people to not stay at home is a couple of things. One, they're afraid of getting really sick. And so they go to a clinic or they go to the hospital. And as I as I mentioned before, I think it's important to really listen to our public health leaders when they tell us to stay at home and they tell us to use telemedicine to call our 
doctors or to call the state health department. And the other piece is really just that we are social beings and we need social connectedness. And I think what, and it is hard, it's hard for us to not go out and, you know, play basketball with our friends or go get a beer with our friends. It's really, really hard for all of us really hard for me. And so um, I do like some of the things that people are doing to just be more innovative around how they um, interact with their children. There's a lot of really great toolkits out there. Chris and I work for the Clinton Foundation and our Too Small to Fail team has come up with a really cool toolkit for entertaining and educating children, young children at home. Uh, Most of my friends have set up regular virtual happy hours. My calendar is now filled with virtual happy hours. People are touching base with each other and really using digital tools in ways that they haven't used them before. So I think on the positive side, um, as we get through this and we get through the virus and we get through the economic issues, I think we're also going to learn a lot about our society and how we can engage with each other at a really different level and support each other emotionally, because I think this is going to be a really, really hard on all of us mentally. It's a good segue into, I think, the the next question I had was that, and look, I know it's it's always going to be it's such a such a large question, right? But I I think when we usually talk about healthcare, we talk about treatment rather than prevention, and, and just overall aspect of of sort of healthcare here in our country is that I guess what do you, what are you doing, you know, day to day with the Clinton Foundation? Is there ways that we can prevent things like this from happening in the future, or is it just there's not really a way to avoid it, but there's a better way for us to be healthy as a society so more people can get through it without dying? Or, and is there a technology that will help us in the future to, to catch this stuff early? Are there specific things that um, the Clinton Foundation is working on that, and I know it's more sort of like day-to-day health and nutrition rather than like infectious disease, right? That's sort of such a different aspect of everything. But do you want to go into a little bit about what you guys have been up to maybe you know, the last few years or even beyond that? One of the things that I think is important to uh, note here is what we call the social determinants of health. And so at the Clinton Foundation, we really look at total health and well-being. It's really physical, it's mental, it's spiritual. But the social determinants of health look at things like where we work, where we play, where we grow up, where we learn, uh, where we age, even where we worship, all have influence as to how we experience health and total well-being. One of the things at the Clinton Foundation that we have been focused on are persons with substance use disorders. And this is a population that um, is often overlooked because of stigma. Uh, One thing that um, I know from COVID-19 is that the mental health impact of transitions is absolutely huge in our country meaning that when we go through a transition, and there's probably no greater transition that we have gone through as a country than COVID-19, the mental health implications and impact of that is going to be very, very significant. We are not even at a place now to even begin talking about that because there's so much unknown right now around COVID-19. But stress, anxiety, depression, we know these things are going to be a, a real challenge moving forward. But when you look at someone with a substance use disorder. You got to look at things like their health. A lot of folks that go through addiction uh, have ongoing challenges around their health. And so the stress that this brings to them, COVID-19, maybe they're HIV positive, maybe they have hepatitis, maybe they have, you know, severe um, problems with their heart or their lungs because of the addiction. Uh, Job insecurity, 
Uh, for many of folks with substance use disorders, they might have done time in prison. They might be convicted felons. They've just got their first job and, and someone gave them a chance and now they're unemployed. Um, residential or home un unsuredness, right? The idea that, you know, if you can't pay the rent, you won't have a place to live. And then perhaps most importantly, the loss of social support. So these are folks that might have found recovery from their substance use disorder. And let's just say they um, are all in on 12-step meetings. But now, yeah. all yeah. of the 12-step meetings that they're going to that were housed in churches and community centers are mm -hmm. closed. Mm -hmm. And so we have just told someone with a substance use disorder to go home and be by themselves. And isolation for many folks with addiction is a trigger. Mm -hmm. And so I think what we're going to start seeing are the numbers that we've all worked as a country so hard on to bring down, go back up. So the opioid epidemic is something that President Clinton has been very focused on. And, uh, and we've made a lot of headway working with faith leaders and others around how best to address overdoses and addiction in our country. But this COVID-19 uh, was a curveball that unfortunately none of yeah. us really saw coming. And um, it's really having an impact on folks with uh, addiction. I think, you know, I would just echo what, what Chris is saying. I think that when it's interesting, I've been reading a lot about the concerns around social isolation. I've heard terms like uh, social recession. Vivek Murthy, who was uh, the Surgeon General under President Obama, wrote a really cool article about social recession. I think just thinking about what's the wave that's going to happen socially after we figure out how to either vaccinate against this virus or manage the illnesses that the virus is going to cause or that the virus is causing. And so when I listen to Chris talk about the substance use disorder community, which is the community that we focus on working with in the Clinton Foundation, you know, I also think about the conversations that we have with Chris and the rest of our team about the lack of structure and challenges within the system, healthcare system here in the United States. And two things that come to mind are access. So access to the healthcare system with uh, vulnerable populations, such as people with substance use disorder. And really that access plays out in another area that we talk about, which is really access to mental health services and behavioral health services. And so when we look at the articles and the conversations around the social recession um, that Vivek Murthy talks about, and we think about what social isolation really means for all of us emotionally, the words that Chris used, such as stress, isolation, job insecurity, lack of social support, I think it really gives all of us a moment to take pause and, and really think about how those are affecting everyone in society right now. And, you know, I'm sure Chris will talk more about the, the work that we're doing around the substance use disorder community, but I think it's important for me to really reflect when I'm thinking about this, about how it really affects everyone in our community, not just um, vulnerable people. I think right now what we've learned is that we're all vulnerable and that we all need to support each other and that we need to be as supportive of the health system as we possibly can by by following the recommendations that you and Chris and I have been talking about today. Yeah, I think it was a it was a it was a great point made by Chris and in the fact that it's we don't we don't think about those sort of individuals where structure is really important to them. You know, when you have, you know, meeting dates and you have a support system around you and you're you're sort of already you know, maybe mentally vulnerable in, in certain ways. And to have all that blown up and disruptions and be told to stay home, you know, by yourself, 
I, I can't imagine, you know, what, what those individuals are dealing with at this moment, because it's not just their uh, mental well-being. But like you said, I mean, maybe they just got a job, right? Maybe they got their, their first job at a sort of rehab, right? Or, or out of prison even. And they're, 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 they're finally getting their feet where they need to be in life and trying to understand the next phase of their life. And then all of a sudden this hurricane just hits everybody. But like most sort of catastrophes, the most vulnerable in our society are going to be the most affected, especially immediately. So I, I just, it just, uh, it just, it just really, it just, it's just devastating on so many fronts. And there's so many things we don't think about and have yet to even understand the uh, effects of it uh, because we're so early on. It just, uh, it just hurts. It just hurts a little bit as an American, man. You know, it's just, it's just tough. Well, think about the people specifically with substance use disorders that struggle with opioids. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the most common treatments that we're offering is buprenorphine. So that's either Suboxone or Subutex. And that's a drug that's given to them to help them with withdrawal, help them with cravings around opioids. Well, mm -hmm. typically done in three-day doses meaning you get three days worth or seven days worth, depending on your provider. Well, in times like this, you know, we need to make sure that they're given enough of the drug to last them, say, for 30 days. Max it out. You know, providers need to max it out because if someone goes into acute withdrawal, they're going to get what they need come hell or high water. You know, and so let's right. remember the progress that we've made and continue to uh, sort of be flexible with regard to how we are thinking as uh, folks that work in this space to make sure that all of the progress that we have been able to accomplish as a country doesn't unwind. And, um, you know, I mean, listen, substance use disorders, overdoses, it is now the leading cause of death for men under 50. Most mm -hmm. people don't know that. Yeah. You know, yeah. We, we, we lose about 70,000 people a year to drug overdoses. So that's the average football stadium. You know, you're, you're Kansas City Super Bowl champion. <laughs> think, about, think about that football stadium packed to the Raptors. Right. Right. And everyone being dead within a year. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is, you know, that is just unacceptable in the United States of America or anywhere for that matter. But that those are the numbers. And, you know, we we, we have a lot of work that uh, we need to do. But COVID-19 is, as Catherine said, something that really no one ever saw the severity and uh, this coming the way that it has. It just came in like a freight train. And for those people with substance use disorders or in recovery, they've had to change everything. And change is not easy for some, someone with a substance use disorder. You know, finding a balance in their life is so important. And, you know, as we say or hear on planes when we ride, you know, put your own oxygen mask on before you <laughs> right. put the one on next to you. So, you know, we need to learn how to help ourselves before we can help anyone else. And this has thrown everyone for a loop. That's why I say, regardless of whether you have a substance use disorder or not, this impact that this transition is going to have on all of us is yep. very, very significant. Yep. Especially when we don't know the end, right? We don't Correct. know when the end is. Is it, is it 30 days? Is it 60 days? Is it 90 days? We don't know. And again, if we, we don't have to touch on this type of stuff, but it, I like the conversation in trying to, to figure out bigger, sort of broader constructs of maybe healthcare and the sort of the structure of the entire system. And I know there's been obviously the past decade or so, you know, single payer healthcare system has been sort of thrust to the forefront a little bit versus what we have now. 
And um, with the Affordable Health Care Act, we had some things that were improved, right? Some some very sort of elementary things that can't believe in America, we don't have something like this, right? And sort of that was sort of taken care of with the Affordable Care Act. But then that that sort of legislation isn't perfect, right? There still needs to be sort of more done. So is there is there a system issue here that where maybe we wouldn't be as, as behind the eight ball as much if our system was improved in certain areas? And if so, what are those areas of improvement that that legislation could improve to to where we can mitigate something like this in the future or just treat it better, I guess. I think just quickly on on one side, I, I can see how important it is to make sure that everybody in the United States is covered, has has health insurance coverage. So, you know, one of the basic, um, one of the baseline pieces of the Affordable Care Act was just really trying to make sure that everyone in this country is covered with health insurance. Because you can see, I think Chris quoted, 80% of the population could be affected by this virus. And so of that 80%, that's a pretty big number of that 80%, um, people need healthcare. You know, they may need primary care, they may need hospitalization. And either of those things for an individual, if they don't have health insurance coverage, can just get devastatingly expensive. So I think just at a very basic level, you bringing up the Affordable Care Act is great and, and bringing up sort of the future of healthcare in the United States, just to make sure that everyone has some sort of coverage so that in a catastrophe like this, in a pandemic, people don't have to make hard choices between their finances and their health. Um, and I think there's other I'd love to hear Chris's thoughts on just the structure around substance use disorder and behavioral health within within the um, system right now. Sure. Well, I'll give you a specific example. You know, we have into law the Mental Health Parity and Addiction Equity Act, which basically says that persons with substance use disorders can get the treatment that they need to treat that disorder and insurance companies must cover it the same way they would cover, you know, uh, hypertension or diabetes. Um, This is a chronic condition that people have. It's a disease. It's not a moral failing. But to give you an idea of the rehab industry, it's a $35 billion a year industry and Mm. there are no national standards. So if you can imagine in cancer, you know, imagine if, if, if all those that, uh, had cancer, we didn't have any sort of national standards. I mean, what's the first thing you do when a loved one is diagnosed with a terminal illness? We want to find out who is the best person to see uh, and then figure out is there a way that we can make that happen? Well, you know, for those people that are uninsured or underinsured, that's not an option, you know? And, and, And if I have someone, a loved one that's struggling with a substance use disorder, if there's no national standards, how do I know where to set? What, how do I know that the treatment center that charges thirty thousand dollars is better than the one that charges twenty thousand dollars? Those are the types of questions that people are trying to answer. And so we have a healthcare system in our country that is not working well. It is in fact broken. And until we can put together a system that is a system for all of us. Uh, we're going to remain having these types of problems, whether it's persons with substance use disorder or not. Uh, we need to be able to have health and your health care not be looked at as a privilege, but as a right. We are all um, supposed to be able to experience optimal 
health and well-being, uh, and and it's just a matter of us as a country moving in that direction and all agreeing. I, I you know, it's amazing. Uh, yesterday, um, that Rand Paul, the senator from Kentucky, was yeah. diagnosed positive yeah. with. Uh, COVID-19, you know, and I thought to myself, boy, you know, he's not going to worry about getting a test or having a provider look at him and, and make sure that he has the best care. That should be the way it is for everyone. But, you know, I had a friend of mine this morning that went in last night to the ER and was sent home and told, well, you probably have it. So treat yourself as if you do have it and don't come back unless things get gravely worse. You know, that, 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 that's not the way that it should be. Um, but, yeah, but unfortunately, no, same, those narratives are, are all too common. Yeah, no, I had the same experience with somebody that I knew, you know, did the same thing. They went in and, and they told them that they didn't feel like they had to be tested, even though that they had most of the symptoms that were were on on that threshold of, of COVID. And it was just like, are they saying that because they don't have enough tests, right? And enough to, to actually administer it to that person. Or are they being are they being forthcoming and saying no, this is fine, go home? But it just seems weird to like come back when you're gravely ill, because everybody's going to be going back when you're gravely ill, and you're not going to be able to be treated <laughs> because everybody's going to go in at once because everybody is going to be getting sick at the same time. That's the whole point I thought of of sort of having these scattered sort of things take place. So why don't we treat the people? I don't know. I, I'm just looking at it from experiences that I have is that nobody has had a good experience walking in and sort of giving even people with insurance, right? We're not even talking about people who don't have insurance. We're talking about people who do have insurance, (laughs) not getting sort of treated as sort of they thought they were going to be, right? And feeling comfortable going home, right? Now they're going home feeling anxious, right? And a lot of anxiety because they're like, well, maybe they said I could have it, but like, only go back to him if I can't breathe all of a sudden. It's just like, it's just a weird sort of emotional tug of war right now for, for some people. Oh, well, listen, Grant, folks with substance use disorder, we have about 20 million people on average with a substance use disorder in our country, and only 10% of them, about 2 million, will mm-hmm. receive treatment this year, leaving you know a 90% treatment gap, which means a lot of folks out there that need treatment for a substance use disorder and will not get it. Uh, that's just not the way that it should be. But unfortunately, you know, it is. That is our reality. And at the Clinton Foundation, we are trying to change that. One of the areas that we're really working in is working with faith leaders from an interfaith perspective. So we have many different faith traditions that we bring together, the leaders, the senior servants of churches and mosques and synagogues, to have a dialogue, to have a conversation with each other and figure out ways that they can work together across Mm -hmm. traditions to address Mm -hmm. substance use disorders from the pulpit and beyond. And, uh, you know, that's um, an area that we've been focused on and now just as a result of COVID-19, we've sort of pivoted and shifted that focus. How do we, as faith leaders, still stay true to our faith tradition, recognizing that our services, whether they're on Saturday or Sunday or some day through the week, depending on your faith tradition, can't meet in the same way that they were? How can we be informed by the best available science, Mm -hmm. but still remain true to our deeply held beliefs? These are the issues that we at the foundation are really, really focused on. And so working with faith leaders in the context of COVID-19, understanding that it's going to take all of us listening to the public health officials, respecting the science, 
being informed by the science, while at the same time saying, listen, we are a nation of uh, folks with deeply held beliefs. We can still be informed by the science without abandoning our beliefs. These are the things that we're really talking about and working with our faith leaders on. And uh, it's just something that the president, uh, President Clinton, has recognized or identified as one of the things that uh, he really believes could change the narrative, could change the way that people understand and uh, and respond to preventing the transmission of, of uh, not only COVID-19, but folks with substance use disorders to give them the help that they so desperately need. And I think Catherine made a good point earlier about sort of the financial cost that individuals may have to incur after all this is sort of over or just while they're they're dealing with everything is that we don't know how people are going to pay for this, right? Even if you have insurance, you're still going to have some type of medical bills from this. I, I, I don't believe that the hospitals are just not going to charge anything. The government's not going to be able to just cover everybody's medical bills from this, especially if we have millions of people who get sick from this. I just, I almost, it pains me to say, but there's, it seems there's going to be more people stumble into substance abuse issues because whether it's an emotional toll, whether it's the financial toll that they're going to have to deal with after all this on top of not having a job either. Like I almost can't blame people, right? I mean, it's just like, how, how much can you get beaten down before it's like, you kind of give up, so to speak, right? It, there's just, there's so much that people are going to have to deal with that it's it's going to be, uh, you could just have so much, so much work left to do. <laughs> so, Well, li- listen, I mean, that's why we're trying to think of creative and strategic ways to get our message out to the people who won't be able to get it otherwise. I mean, you're absolutely right, Grant. People are not going to be able to pay for all of the services that they're getting. Right now, you know, with the packages they're putting together, I've heard as much as $2 trillion. You know, that's 10% of our national deficit. It's obviously money that most people can't even comprehend. But the truth is, is that, you know, health is not a privilege. It's a right. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, we as, you know, Americans and, and, and people that are in this country need to demand that, you know, our health comes first. Because without our health, what do we really have? Um, and, and, and I'm not just talking about physical health. I'm talking about mental health. I'm talking about yes. spiritual health, you know, yes. sexual health. I mean, total health and well-being. We need to be thinking about it. We need to work together. We need to come together. Listen, if it's one thing that COVID has done on the positive side of things is that it has brought people together, you know, under, under one roof. I mean, I've had family meals now for the last week with my family um, because, you know, we are all now in the house together. I, I, I heard it best. One of my faith leaders said, I'm, I'm trying to like the people that I love. Uh, he, all of his eight kids are home under one roof. And uh, I thought that was a great a great uh, thing that he said, uh, a rabbi here in Atlanta. But I really related to that, right? Um, we don't have a playbook for this. We don't have a manual. We're all sort of groping in the fog together. But I think we all have the resilience to get through this. And, uh, you know, it's been President Clinton's leadership that has really helped us through these times like this as a foundation. Uh, a lot of people are scared because we don't know the future. We, there's an acronym that we use in recovery. I'm a person in long-term recovery myself, and it's FEAR. And uh, FEAR stands for forget everything and run, <laughs> or face everything and recover. 
And I think now is the time in our nation that we need to come together uh, and face everything and recover. Um, and what that looks like, many of us don't know. But I think if we can come to this with um, some open-mindedness and some willingness to do our part, to make some sacrifices, which means stay at home, listen to the public health officials, I think we can get through this. The last thing I think I'll try to end on is, I know it's just, it's a big question, but I think, look, throw as many as you want at the wall here. Is there resources that you found really valuable um, that people should check out, should go to? Is there something at the Clinton Foundation that people can look at? Is there some substance abuse material that you guys have created or other resources? Is there something at the CDC that people should look at? I think from, from just an overall perspective of everything that you guys have maybe read or trusted resources, which I think is invaluable at this point, like trusted resources that you could could talk about that people can go to and really get really informed and impartial information. Absolutely. Yeah. I'll, I'll start. And then Catherine, I'm sure we'll throw some more in. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to stick to mostly substance use disorder stuff. So yeah, that's a great question. Uh, and what I would say is for persons with substance use disorder, this has really challenged all of us to try and figure out a different way of experiencing recovery, experiencing life. Um, this has forced us all to really tap into the technology that's available to all of us. And um, it's, it's so important to stay connected. And so there are a couple of websites that um, I think are worth mentioning. One is Daily Strength, and that's found at www.dailystrength.org. And it's an online network of support groups, and it has many different areas uh, of um, focus. So if you're a vet that has a substance use disorder, um, and you might have some PTSD uh, coupled with your substance use disorder, there's a support group online under Daily Strength for that. So it has many different um, focuses. There's another one called In the Rooms, intherooms.com. And that is um, a, a platform with over 130 weekly online meetings for those recovering from addiction. Another one, of course, is Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous. Both of them have online meetings uh, regularly every day. And if you go to aa.org uh, or na.org, you can find the virtual meetings that are happening all over the world that you can tap into. And then Support Group Central is the final one that I'll mass, uh, uh, mention, and that's just supportgroupscentral.com. Uh, and, you know, all of those sites are opportunities for us to plug into our recovery in a different way, um, and I encourage everyone to do that. But there is more than just meetings uh, that makes up for those of us in recovery. I mean, we need to reach out to the folks that are in our network. We need to read our literature. There's just a lot of things that we can do above and beyond going to meetings, um, whether that be online or, or in person. And the final thing I would say is, is that every day the CDC is updating their website at 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And I think that, you know, the CDC is a great, great um, resource for all of us to uh, visit and get information from, be informed by. It is very difficult to stay up on the numbers because the numbers continue to climb. Uh, and, you know, it's something that we all have to be aware of. I uh, started this conversation, and you'll note the numbers that I gave at the beginning. And I look now, and we're at 41,000 total cases. So it's gone up 1,200 
cases, positive tests, uh, just in the hour that we've been talking. Mm-hmm. So that's mm-hmm. the type of things that we're up against. I mean, going 1,200 more in less than an hour, um, that's what we're up against right now. And so it's going to take all of us, like I said, working together. But um, I know Catherine probably has uh, maybe some other um, ideas as to where and how to continue to get our information. I would really just highlight what Chris said about the CDC, cdc cdc.gov, because they really have very simple, easy to understand information. I think, Grant, what you mentioned was really important, that people are nervous and they don't feel like they're getting the care that they need. And the CDC has done a really great job of aggregating a lot of information for different people, healthcare providers, community members, elder, the elderly. So I would just echo what Chris said. I would encourage people to check out clintonfoundation.org, uh, where we have different information for young people, people with children at home, people with substance use disorder, caregivers. And I'm hoping that people will check that out and and give us feedback as well. I would um I would just say one more thing and that is, you know, when we think about community, um I often think of what I refer to as the four Fs. It's family, friends, faith, and food. And I think that, you know, um we know that COVID can't be transmitted over the phone. Hopefully all of us have a phone and hopefully we're reaching out to family, we're reaching out to friends, we're digging into our faith and we're using it as an opportunity to hopefully break bread together and talk and be a family. Because what we know when we work together that one plus one plus one is far greater than three. And I think that, you know, this is obviously an infectious disease outbreak pandemic of which we have never seen this type happen uh, in our country, um, in our lifetime anyway. And so I think it's really important Um, in times like this to really come together and and work together regardless of our political persuasion or any of that. You know, um, at the end of the day, um, we are one people um, and we can see how this disease really shrunk our whole world and really makes us realize that, you know, um, we're only one plane ride away from the other side of the the globe. And and, uh, that's been uh, a challenge for for COVID-19. But I'm confident that um, if we come together, we work together, we can really, really stop this or at least slow it down and give our public health officials the chance that they so desperately are asking for to begin to help us um, recover from this virus. Well, I... uh... I really do appreciate taking the time. I know we're all sort of dealing with uh, different <laughs> livelihoods right now um, and our sort of routines have been disrupted and, and sort of family has been disrupted. So uh, I really appreciate you taking the time and, and trying to navigate all this and, and sort of giving a little bit of perspective in respects to, to your expertise. And it's, it's just, it's been truly helpful to me and I know it'll be helpful to, to others uh, when they listen to it. So uh, I really appreciate you taking the time. Th- thank you so much. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for all of your work in social entrepreneurship. We love the podcast and we were excited to join you today.